The reading is um, from the book of First Samuel and um, chapter 2, and um, it's Hannah's prayer. So we're going to start at chapter 2, verse 1 to 10. If you'd like to get the lovely brand new Bibles out of the pews, it's on page 272 um, of the church Bibles. So Hannah's prayer, it will also be on the screen for those of you who'd prefer. Hannah's prayer. Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted high. My mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. There is no one holy like the Lord. There is no one besides you. There is no rock like our God. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak such arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows and by him deeds are weighed. The bows of the warriors are broken but those who stumbled are armed with strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for food. But those who were hungry are hungry no more. She who was barren has borne seven children. But she who has had many sons pines away. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and makes them inherit a throne of honour. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. On them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful servants. But the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It is not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Susan. I think I'll uh, speak from here as well, if that's, uh, that's all right. Uh, let's pray, shall we? Father, we pray that this evening you would inform our minds, inspire our hearts, and transform our wills so that we may serve you better. Amen. As you heard that read, you might have thought, hang on a moment, wasn't that the reading we had last week? And I thought that was the last sermon in the series about 1 Samuel. 
And if you thought that, you'd have shared that belief with last week's preacher, because he said that at the beginning of his sermon, didn't you, Nigel? You were wrong, because you've got me this week. But you may, if you've been following the series more generally, have thought, well, aren't we going backwards? Didn't we consider uh, chapter 2 of 1 Samuel three months ago? Indeed, we did. Actually, three months to the day ago, I spoke to you in the evening service about just this passage. But bear with me. There is method in this madness. We are going to look at it to pull back and view it again in the light of what we've read in 1 Samuel. Because, of course, last week we came to the end of 1 Samuel. We looked at the death of Saul at the end of 1 Samuel, at the Battle of Mount Gilboa. Now, we could read on into 2 Samuel. Actually, the division between 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel is totally artificial. It doesn't appear in the Hebrew. It just carries on with the history of Israel. We could do that, but we're not going to do it. We might return to it sometime. But just before we move on to consider other parts of the Bible in the run-up to Christmas... It is worthwhile just pausing and just thinking, what have we learned? Each one of us should be thinking, what have have I learned from it? Now, I don't know about you, but the last three months seems to have been a very long period, and trying to think back to what we were looking at even a few weeks ago seems to have been a bit of an effort on my part. So let's just uh, think about it. Let's just think what we're told in, in 1 Samuel. We start with the story of Hannah wanting a baby and the birth of Samuel, and the growth of Samuel as as a child. We see Eli and his wicked sons and their subsequent death. Consider the wickedness of Israel as a country, its apostasy, and its catastrophic defeat at the Battle of Ebenezer. And we looked at the aftermath of that battle. And then we moved on to consider the national reformation under Samuel, the prophet, culminating ultimately in the triumphant battle of Mizpah. But then decades passed, and we learned that things headed downwards again. And ultimately, the Israelites rebelled again against God and demanded a king, which was what led to the uh, anointing of Saul as the first ever king over Israel. He got off to a reasonable start, but of course we then focused on his disobedience, his faithlessness and his decline, which of course in turn led to the consecration of David as his successor. And we read about David's triumph, killing Goliath, triumph over the Philistines, even before he became king, and subsequently other triumphs. But we also read about Saul's jealousy. And the last whole third of the book of 1 Samuel is about uh, the chasing of David by Saul, Saul's pursuit, his insane pursuit of David, an ultimately fruitless dispute, uh, di- pursuit of him because it all ended, as we read last week, in Saul's death at the Battle of Mount Gilboa. And so in the course of the last three months, we've looked at all types of human behaviour. At an individual level, we've seen people displaying true faith, haven't we? Think about Hannah. Think about Samuel. 
Think about Saul's son, Jonathan. Think above all about David. But we've also seen people who profess to religion but are merely religious. They demonstrate religiosity, not true faith. Eli's sons, Eli himself, and of course, above all, Saul. And and we've looked at the behaviour of pagans, the Philistines in particular, some of their kings and other things that were done. We've seen all sorts of human behaviour and human emotions. Uh, We've seen the anger of David. We looked at that a couple of weeks ago. We've seen the jealousy of Saul, the faithfulness of his son, Jonathan. We've seen a whole range of emotions. And what about at a national level? We've seen all sorts of different situations, haven't we? We've seen a lot of war, but long periods of peace. We've seen bad times for the Israelite people. We've seen good times for the Israelite people. We've looked at periods of national renewal. We've looked at periods of apostasy and disaster. There's quite a wide range of human experience there in 1 Samuel. And behind it all, if you think about it, every week behind what we've been reading about has been God. God's purposes, God's actions, and how people have responded to God and the consequences of the way in which they have responded. You see, we haven't looked at 1 Samuel because it provides a fascinating window on ancient history, though incidentally it does. And we haven't looked at it, at least not primarily, because it contains fantastic, memorable vignettes of particular situations, things that we can remember and learn from. Although, of course, it does. We've looked at it because of what it tells us about the nature, character, and will of God, about how God acted in the days of Hannah and David, and how he acts today, and how we should therefore behave in the light of all of that. That's why we've looked at it, isn't it? And what I suggest we now do is go back to Hannah's song and relate it to all of those things that we have been thinking about, because what it does is it generalises from them. So can I suggest everyone has in front of them uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2. It's on page 272 of the Spanking New Bibles in the, uh, uh, in the church. Um, incidentally, um, uh, I'm sure no, you know, Tom may well put the passages up on the screen. In four places... The updated translation in the Bibles in the pews now is slightly different from what you've got, uh, we'll be seeing up on the the screen. Uh, It really doesn't matter. I've marked up my version here, so uh, I know where they are. But page 272, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2, starting at verse 1. Then Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord my horn is lifted high, my mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. As I've said before, horn there symbolises strength. What Hannah's saying is, you Lord have strengthened me, you've given me deliverance, you've given me vindication over particularly Peninnah, 
her husband's second wife who had been tormenting her. You've given me deliverance, she's saying, and I rejoice in it. And if you think about it, going through 1 Samuel, we constantly see people who are rejoicing in God's deliverance. In a small way, Jonathan when he was led uh, to uh, ambush the Philistines, trusted in God and was delivered. But of course, the big one is David, who experienced God's deliverance when he fought Goliath. And for many years, while he was on the run from Saul. And then if you look at verse 9, it says, he will guard the feet of his faithful servants. That may make it sound as though God's deliverance is passive, acting as a shield. But what we've seen in 1 Samuel is God's deliverance is far more active as that uh, than that. And, and in verse 8, you, you see it does talk about active things. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princes and makes them inherit a throne of honour. David, of course, experienced that literally. We didn't see the culmination of it because we only hear of him becoming king uh, in 2 Samuel. But he did inherit a throne of honour, literally. The other people we've talked about uh, experienced that metaphorically, didn't they? Think about Hannah herself and Samuel. But who is it who experiences God's deliverance? according to Hannah. Well, verse 9 says, he will guard the feet of his faithful servants. In the version that was uh, shown on the screen, um, it actually says he'll guard the feet of his saints. The underlying wording is actually holy ones. Uh, And you may think, well, what exactly is that about? It it is right. It's talking about people who are faithful. Uh, This comes from Hebrews chapter 11. And what more shall I say? I do not have time, this is the writer talking about people's faith, I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, they all are read about in uh, Judges, the book of Judges, Daniel, uh, David, Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, escaped the edge of the sword, think David, whose weakness was turned to strength, who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Samuel did that. David did that. You see, that's Hannah's first point. God delivers give salvation to those who have faith in him. Big point one from Hannah, illustrated time and again in 1 Samuel. But then she moves on to the nature and character of God. Take a look at verse two. There's no one holy like the Lord. There's no one besides you. We don't don't really need it repeated, do we? But God is utterly other. He's separate and apart from the whole of creation. He is pure and perfect. In fact, there is no other God. The Philistines had to learn that, didn't they? After the Battle of Ebenezer, they thought that it wasn't just they who had beaten the Israelites. They thought their God, Dagon, had beaten the Israelites' God, the Lord. Well, God put paid to that idea, if you remember. The statue of Dagon was destroyed. You see, the Lord, 
the God revealed to Moses on Mount Sinai, the God revealed to us through the Old Testament and in Jesus in the New Testament, is the only Lord. That Lord alone is divine, the only pure and perfect one. And as a result, end of verse 2, there's no rock like our God. God's a rock. He's dependable, a a, a, a reliable God. You see, God's deliverance isn't random. You might get it, you might not. What, What 1 Samuel says to us is, those who have faith in him can depend upon his deliverance. We see that, of course, in David. We see it in Hannah. And we see it in Jonathan. Though we need to come back to Jonathan because there's an issue there. But before we do that, Hannah moves to the flip side of the same coin. And this is her third point. You see, she points out that there is another aspect of God's character which relates to him being a rock. Um, go, go back to verse 2, end. There is no rock like our God, and reading on, do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth, mouth speak such arrogance, for the Lord is a God who knows, and by him deeds are weighed. And then again in verse 9, He will guard the feet of his faithful servants, but the wicked will be silenced in the place of darkness. It's not by strength that one prevails. Those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. The Most High will thunder against them from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. Yet, you see, the Lord is perfect and pure. He's omnipotent and omniscient. That's why he is a rock. That's why he delivers people. That's how it all originates in God's character. But it's for precisely the same reasons that we mustn't trifle with God, whether collectively or individually. And again, we've seen lots of examples of that. Think about the Israelites What led up to the battle of Ebenezer? Well, they first of all ignored God, and then they sinned against God. And the result was national disaster. They also then, in a panic, tried to manipulate God. They brought the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of God's presence, into the battle. And they thought somehow that would compel God to be with them. God would be with them if they had this symbol. Well, he disabused them of that notion, didn't he? They were utterly defeated. Uh, Furthermore, God stressed his pureness and holiness because once they got the ark back, people treated it with disrespect. And in doing so, were treating God with disrespect. And they died. God is pure and holy and perfect. We don't trifle with God. And what about at an individual level? Oh, by the way, of course, the Philistines discovered that as well. I've talked about Dagon being uh, uh, crushed, but we're also told that to emphasize to the Philistines that God had not been defeated at the Battle of Ebenezer, he brought a plague on them. And they then, if you recall, take a look at chapter 6 if you want to afterwards, uh, he, he, they then did a test 
to see whether the theory that this really was God was right. And uh, God passed the test, unsurprisingly. We don't trifle with God, and we don't trifle individually, as I was moving on to say. Remember the sons of Eli, wicked Eli, who failed to do anything about it, and we're told that they died on the same day. And what about Saul himself? Saul went into what I've described as that downward spiral, resisting the will of God, and he was destroyed. It's an awful thing to oppose God. There's no getting away from that awfulness of it, opposing the creator of the universe. And Hannah then brings together these various things because she says that it's, it's as if God overturns the apparent order of the world. Look at, look at verse 4. The bows of the warriors are broken, but those who stumble are armed with strength. Those who were full hire themselves out for food, but those who were hungry are hungry no more. She who was barren has borne seven children, but she who has had many sons pines away. Now, here again, of course, Hannah experienced the last bit of that, literally. Well, she didn't have seven sons, as far as we're aware, but she was barren and had one. Other people, in particular David, we've seen experienced it, as it were, metaphorically. And of course the reason why God's able to do that is because he's sovereign over the whole of creation. And Hannah makes that point in the succeeding verses. The Lord brings death, this is verse 6, I'm sorry. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. The Lord sends poverty and wealth He humbles and he exalts. And then I've read the next bit, but go on to the end of verse 8. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. Upon them he has set the world. It's all God's. That's why he does all of these things. He's there. You see, uh, people who have no faith reading 1 Samuel will take it, if they believe it at all, as being simply an account of a bit of human history. But that's not what 1 Samuel says about it, is it? Week after week, it's been emphasising that this is the account of God working out his purposes and his will. That's fundamentally what it repeats time and time and time again as regards almost every aspect of, of what we've read about Now, we'll come back to that, but I'd just like to pause at that moment and ask a really rather crucial question. We need to make sure that we understand the significance for us of what we've been reading about. Put simply, do the principles that we are just reading about here in 1 Samuel chapter 2 apply to us? Or put it another way, are the experiences of Hannah and Eli, and Samuel, and Saul, and Jonathan, and David. Are those experiences at all relevant to us today? Of course they are. Because God doesn't change, does he? God is still utterly set apart. He is still incomparable, pure, and perfect. 
He's still omnipotent and omniscient. And therefore, he is still a rock who can be relied upon to deliver people, us. And what's more, he is still the God who will judge the ends of the earth. It all applies, doesn't it, today? There's been no change in the creator, the sovereign Lord of our world. And so we can indeed apply all of this in what Hannah says to ourselves. That's why we've been looking at one, Samuel. But we do need to be careful. And we need to be careful that we read all of one Samuel not just the parts we like, although I suspect I've already quoted some parts that we don't really like in any meaningful way. Because you see, life's complex, and there are a lot of situations which don't admit simple answers. That's certainly true in our lives today, at least if you don't think it is, come and have a word afterwards, you must have a jolly simple life. Uh, But here's the point. It was also true in Hannah's day. It's just easy to miss. Think about it for a moment. God gave deliverance to Hannah. Yeah. But she had to go through a number of years, we read, of suffering, of being tormented and effectively bullied by her husband's other wife. Why? We don't know. 1 Samuel doesn't tell us that. It just tells us that ultimately God vindicated her. But it does also tell us that she went through a lot of suffering beforehand. A few moments ago I mentioned the deliverance of Jonathan. And that's right. But he died at the Battle of Gilboa. He died young. Why? As Eddie put it this morning in his sermon, he had a tough calling If you want to think more about that, do do listen to Eddie's sermon this morning because he focuses on that in some detail and it's really crucial, but we mustn't miss it. It's not that our world is different from Hannah's world. It's not that it was all simple. 1 Samuel doesn't present us with cheap options, simple, happy world. Very far from it. And Jonathan, we're not told why in God's will Jonathan was to die young. We're simply shown how God was with him and granted him deliverance while in God's will he remained alive. And what about David? Well, we thought about this a few weeks ago. God's will for David was that he should become the king of Israel, God's anointed king. What better could there be? But he spent years on the run, scared on occasions, doubtless hungry, Surrounded by a group of people who were a pretty lot of dodgy characters, some of them. The fact is, he did not have an easy life. Why? Well, we don't know, do we? What we do know is that God was with him and God was delivering him. You see, Hannah's day was not different from our day. The people who knew God in those days lived complex lives as we do. And just as that did not invalidate what Hannah was saying in their day, nor does it do so today. God is sovereign. God delivers. That's the key thing we need to take away from 1 Samuel. Or is it? Is that the limit? 
I could finish the sermon now because actually what I've just said is important in terms of our behaviour, how God is working in the world. But if I were to do so, I would in fact leave out perhaps the biggest thing that we've looked at in 1 Samuel and perhaps the biggest takeaway from 1 Samuel. Because you see, 1 Samuel looks beyond itself, doesn't it? It looks further into the future in relation to God's salvation. We've looked at that in terms of any number of details in the book uh, during the weeks we've been looking at it, and I'm not going to repeat what's been said in previous sermons. Uh, But let's just think about a few really big picture things. What Samuel is talking about God's salvation of his people. Uh, Hannah ends her prayer by looking forward to the day when Israel would have a God-given king. Look at the end of verse 10. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Of course, that was David. David uh, was anointed by God as his king. And even before he became king, as I mentioned a few moments ago, he killed Goliath assisted in the defeat of the Philistines and uh, brought deliverance, salvation to his his people. Uh, Of course, 1 Samuel ends uh, with a defeat. Defeat of the people, the scattering of the army and the death of the king. But we know that that was not the end. What came next was David ascending the throne. You can read this if you'd like to read on through 2 Samuel. David ascending the throne as God's anointed king, bringing again salvation from the the Philistine oppression and introducing what came to be a golden age for the Israelites. But, But there's still more. And again, we've pointed to this week after week. Because all of that typifies, it points forward to what God was to do in Jesus. Think about it. Let's give a couple of examples. 1 Samuel tells us how God replaced the faithless priests, Eli and his sons and their whole house, with faithful, albeit imperfect, priests in uh, Samuel and ultimately the house of Zadok. They were to be God's anointed priests. And the book of Hebrews tells us that those priests pointed forward to the faithful, perfect high priest, Jesus. And then again, 1 Samuel tells us of how God replaced the faithless king Saul with the faithful, if imperfect, King David as his anointed ruler of his people. And the Gospels and the Epistles in the New Testament tell us that David typified and indeed was the ancestor of Jesus, the faithful and perfect King And I've lost my thread. 
forgive me, I'm trying to think what I was going to say next. Yes. Go back to verse 10. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. When I was speaking about that before, I pointed out the word anointed is Messiah. David was the Messiah to bring salvation to God's people of his time. Jesus was the Messiah for all God's people in all times. If you think about it, like David, Jesus was not obviously the material of which kings are made. But like David, through God's power, he brought salvation. David brought salvation of a temporal kind to a particular group of people. Jesus brings eternal salvation to God's people at all time and everywhere. And then think again. Just as uh, when David approached uh, Goliath to fight him, he did so in weakness, and what he was doing appeared like foolishness. So Jesus came to the cross in weakness, and again, what he was doing appeared like foolishness. But God was using that weakness and that foolishness to bring salvation. Let's pull right back. Let's just think about Hannah finally. You see, Hannah recognised the majesty of God, didn't she? She recognised that what was happening in her life was just a small part of a much bigger picture. She realised that the big picture was about God bringing deliverance, God bringing salvation. Now, she could probably only conceive that in terms of her own people and her own age. Although I must say, verse 6, the Lord brings death and makes alive, gives you pause for thought, doesn't it? But whatever her scope of her vision, she foresaw that God would deliver his people. And in 1 Samuel, we see that that expectation, that hope, was completely justified. But we also see that what she was looking at was not something unique to her time. It's true of our time as well. And what's more, though she doubtless could not conceive of it, her song receives its full fulfilment in Jesus. The uh, reading plan that accompanies this sermon series is entitled, Who is the True King? If we read 1 Samuel on its own, we would come to the conclusion that the answer is David. And within its own terms, that's true. But David points forward to someone else. And if we look at this in the context of the whole Bible, we can see that the true king is Jesus. And ultimately, that's what we're looking at. Amen.